Hello and welcome to A Dose of Nature. This is a podcast all about the health of humans, the health of the environment and all of the connections in between. We have an awesome guest on today, it's Dr Artie Bansell. She's a local GP in Sheffield and she's also worked for 10 years at Sheffield University in medical education. And she's the founder and now the chair of the Greener Practice Group, which is a South Yorkshire-based initiative working to support GPs to engage with action on climate change. Artie, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. So maybe if you start by telling us a bit about yourself and a brief timeline of your career. Right. Well, um, I have to think back now. <laughs> I've been working for a while. So I've been, um, I've been a GP in Sheffield now since 2001. I, I came to Sheffield to train as a GP back then. Yep. Um, and really got into medical education um, about 2005-2006 teaching um, in our general practice unit and and I've loved that and my my sort of uh, big uh, passion there has been to um, try and make the students uh, recognise that we need to make our education more patient-centred so I've been working with that for, for a long time so um, and yeah, and now I'm doing some research into medical education around um, patient-centred care. So that's very exciting. Great. I read somewhere that you worked in Australia, in Tasmania. Yes. Yeah, so my husband's um, from Tasmania. Cool. And uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough to work three times there. Um, once before meeting my husband, that was uh, just after doing medical school. Yeah. Um, and I went and did emergency medicine. Um, the, the most exciting time was um, just um, before we got married, actually. We were in Alice Springs for a year. And oh, wow. I worked with the Aboriginal community oh. in, in a primary wow. centre. So that, that was amazing. It was fascinating. Yeah. It was um, it was shocking to see the inequality, I would okay. say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. OK, so what sort of things were you doing whilst working with the Aboriginals in Australia? So I was... Um, one of the GPs basically in this um, primary care centre so okay. we were providing care to the people there and uh um, we were responsible not just for the Aboriginal community in um, Alice Springs, but basically all the communities quite far out. Okay. Um, and that could be six hours away from Alice Springs because wow. it's a big place really in remote. the centre of Australia. Yeah. Really, really remote stuff, yeah. Uh, you didn't bump into Kangaroo Jack or whatever his name we, is. We had, we had a kangaroo <laughs> in our um, back garden, <laughs> which helped with keeping the lawn in check because we were rubbish at that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're interested in climate change. Yeah. So how did you sort of get to thinking about climate change and wanting to do something about it? Yeah, well, to to be honest, if I think back, um, I think the first time I got interested and activated was 25 years ago when I was in sixth form college. And at the time, people were talking about the rainforest and how it was the lungs of the world and Mm -hmm. we were cutting it away and feeling really quite worried about this. And I remember a friend of mine, um, we wrote to the local MP and we organised local assembly and things like that. And and I I was active to an extent at university but at university I got really interested in um, international issues I think around peace um, uh, and the environmental movement I I sort of I was working with fair trade and things but I didn't really get so much involved with climate change because it wasn't really I don't think back then we were using the word climate change we were using global warming but I don't Mm. think we were using climate change so you've been quite an activist then for you well yeah I mean I did that was my first dip if you like into activism when I was at sixth form college but then you know you have kids um so I've got two children who are now 11 and nearly eight and uh so there was a period where I didn't have a lot of time and you know I was just sort of 
working. Change, I guess. So I was one of those people who would, you know, who would support on 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 the outside with yeah. um, supporting charities um, like Friends of the Earth and Oxfam and Greenpeace and things like that, but not mm-hmm. necessarily getting involved. Yeah. And then a few years ago, it was in the run up to um, the Paris Climate Agreement. One of my friends um, in the city. Um, you know, she started to get involved going into schools and helping schools and children get involved with climate change. And I don't know if you've heard it. There's a fantastic um, song, which I think was... Um, Are you going to start singing? I might. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a song that was taught to kids in school. Okay, let's get And then the idea was to make a video yeah. of this song. And uh, children around the world would make a video of this song. It's called Sing, Singing for the Climate or Sing for oh, the okay. Climate. Um, and... And then that those videos would be sent to the people you know who were negotiating at the at the Paris Climate um, sure. Agreement as as a as a wonderful nice way of showing how this was an issue that lots of people cared about. Yeah. So I got involved with that. I got involved with Sheffield Climate Alliance, um, and um, you know helped to organise um, a little bit. Helped. I mean, I, there are lots of other people did a lot more work yeah. than I did, but um, to organise the the Sheffield. Um, sort of event for the you know preceding the Paris climate talks and I think that's when I went back and I actually looked at what was happening and for a while it actually really frightened me because you know I always knew about climate change I understood the science behind climate change I knew that it was because we were burning all those fossil fuels and putting them in the air what I didn't understand was how urgent it was yeah it's such a massive issue it's kind of hard to um, process isn't it but also, it, what I was really shocked about was that it was it was kind of now or never, yeah. really. So this isn't something that you know technology is going to be able to save us. But you know, like I'm sure technology will contribute, mm-hmm. but it's not something where um, we've got 20, 30, 40 years. And I think when people th- talk about things like 2050 or 2100, and and what they're talking about is the consequences of climate change, yeah. it can make people think we've got that time. We've got a generation before we actually have to do something. So when I was started reading up about it, and I realised that actually we're going to hit these tipping points mm-hmm. and um, we're looking at the next five to ten maybe 15 years at the most mm-hmm. um, before we've actually put so much um, carbon dioxide fossil fuel mm-hmm. stuff in the air um, that the warming's going to just happen anyway sure. that was really shocking and then also realizing that um, despite it being really wonderful that all of these people were you know all these countries were getting together and actually committing to it and agreeing that it is happening and we absolutely need to do something the commitments fell really well short mm. of what we actually need to happen um, yeah, they change all the time though don't they because obviously yeah. lots of governments change and lots of leaders change and then yeah. their views on climate change change as well, well I so know I mean that's not been mentioning a, anything yeah so. yeah <laughs> oh, it's been a bit of a shocker recently um <laughs> So then that sort of made me think, oh, you know, I actually need to be a little bit more active. But it was kind of difficult to know how. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky in that I was asked by um, a colleague of mine who is the um, president of the local Royal College of GPs faculty. Okay. Um, who similarly um, was concerned that climate change is an issue. I was asked you know, can you look at how we can engage our profession so mm-hmm. that we're doing something by leading through example? Yeah. Um, and that felt to me um, like... Really impactful, really, yeah, well, really important. impactful, but also something that if made sense for me to do. Okay. Um, so the, there's amazing people in the city who are working um, really well, you yeah. know, Sheffield Climate Alliance and all sorts of other organisations who are working to see what we can do as a city and what, you know, sure. what we can do to engage the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made sense for me 
be belonging to the GP community to see how I could engage, engage my own community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And also because I think people still see climate change as a weather issue. Sure. Um, we did a survey when we, you know, when I first started to look into this. And one of the questions that we asked GPs was, do you think this is a health issue? Mm -hmm. um, and some people thought it was a health issue, but most people didn't. So most people Failing still... to see the connection. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it it's... Climate change is basically affecting all of our fundamental determinants of health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're, if we're not going to have clean air, clean water, plenty of food... Um, then, you know, we can't support health. Mm -hmm. Plus, you know, there's all the direct impacts on health. So the fact that, um, you know, vector-borne disease, by which I mean infectious diseases that are carried by things like mosquitoes, sure. will completely change And Lyme disease is increasing, yeah. moving upwards through yeah. the country, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's thought that climate change is contributing to the expansion of vector-borne diseases such as Lyme disease. So Lyme disease is an infectious disease caused by a bacteria named Borrelia. Now it's typically spread by ticks, so the parasitic arachnid that feeds on blood of different hosts, typically birds and mammals. There are a wide range of symptoms associated with Lyme disease, including pain and swelling, heart problems, issues with the nervous system and inflammation, and a few people actually go on to develop more severe longer term symptoms, such as chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. It's thought that climate change is changing the environmental conditions and making them more suitable for these vector-borne diseases. And in the UK at least, it's thought that incidence rates are increasing further north you go. So taking Scotland for example, in a paper called Brave New Worlds, the Expanding New Universe of Lyme Disease by Stone et al. in 2017, it stated that in Scotland between 2008 and 2013, the prevalence of Lyme disease in all of Scotland was 6.8 cases per 100,000 people. However, in the Highland region, it's thought that Lyme disease has increased dramatically, and during the same period, incidence rate was 44.1 cases per 100,000 people. That's a significant difference. And it goes on to say that the Tayside region adjacent to Highlands saw a dramatic rise in Lyme disease cases recently, an increase that has been attributed to changes in climate. So this is another reason why we should really care about the effects of climate change, is this expansion of vector-borne diseases. And then also things like um, heat in itself, you know, when we have these really hot days, yep. that actually kills people. Mm. Having really, um, you know, uh, cold winters kills people. Obviously the recent fires in California mm. and there's the massive drought in South Africa, I think it is. Yeah. That's unprecedented at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting you say that you want to make an impact with the community of GPs because lots of people trust GPs as well, so then that's creating a cascading impact, isn't it? Well, it is, and but it's also about normalising um, climate change being spoken about in health terms. Sure. And it's it was also interesting. So when I was asked by my colleague, uh, Dr. Amarugani, to, to sort of look into this for, for the faculty um, and for our sort of regional community, I, um, I suddenly came across all of these resources that I wasn't aware of. Right. So, you know, the WHO has mm -hmm. written a lot about health and climate change. The Lancet has partnered with the WHO and there's a commission that's looking at the impacts of climate change. We in this country have all, pretty much all of the Royal Colleges and the major medical journals have all signed up and created something called the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Yeah. And, um, you know, very, very clearly loads of resources there about um, what climate change is and how it's a health issue and the ways that we can mitigate it. But 
interestingly enough, even for somebody who I, you know, I count myself as as uh, as somebody who's sort of very much on the activist side of this spectrum. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know about them. So there's know about the resources. I didn't know that. I didn't. Yeah. Or the issues. No, I knew about the issues. Yeah. What I didn't know was that our profession globally mm-hmm. had already. Um, done a lot of work in this sure, area okay. and and made sort of statements out to say we need to do stuff mm. about this but somehow that I felt like that hadn't penetrated okay and it's interesting because when I've spoken to lots of colleagues and I said oh, are you aware of what the Lancet are doing or did you know about the UK Health Alliance for Climate Change our college is a is a you know partner to that they've no idea and and you know um similarly divestment which yeah. I probably yeah I didn't know what divestment was yeah so that is interesting isn't it so yeah. you, here we'll you talk are. about divestment in a minute okay. hopefully yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool um so yeah so that it just felt like a really a really good great opportunity yep. to 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 actually engage um you know our community and 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 see what we could achieve with okay so this has led to um you starting the greener practice group yeah so do you want to tell the listeners a bit more about that yeah so it's just um it's it's a group of interested um initially gps but we've now got uh, medical students as well we've got retired gps we've got a sort of allied um health professionals um and uh, you know yourself (laughs) yeah um who are um all basically interested and and people who who recognize that climate change is a health issue yeah. um and recognize that acting on climate change is not just about protecting future health mm-hmm. protecting the health of our children um our own our own future you know decades as yeah. it were um but it's also improving health now mm-hmm. because there's so many things uh, there's so many sort of existing agendas yeah. that we push so much as doctors um and you know in in public health in particular so you know we're always talking about the importance of exercise yep. and reducing obesity everyone's heard of that um, but that obviously fits in very much with active transport mm-hmm. so um, we need to get cars off the road yeah yeah it's, it's a really common theme when I ask yeah. people what we should do with cities it's yeah. make it carless absolutely <laughs> make it more yeah. walkable more yeah. accessible to green spaces yeah. etc so there's an awful lot written about health um, behavior change and you know I'm i I'm no expert in that but one of the things is is that you have to make it easy for people to engage with the activity Um, and when you've got a when you've got cities that are designed to be driven through and driven in um, but not convenient for walking or pleasant (laughs) or cycling then you know it's not surprising people don't take those options and and we we really should be making things like exercise something that you do as part of your normal life mm. not something that you have to go and find extra time to do in yeah, the gym absolutely. um so if we if we can promote active transport yeah. um not only do we um reduce obesity increase exercise with huge massive impacts on health mm-hmm. um but we're also reducing air pollution, sure. which is also having massive impacts on health. So I think the Royal College of Physicians had a recent report where they said annually 40,000 people are dying of the effects of air pollution. Wow. So um, who was it the other day that mentioned that a similar number of deaths occur from due to air pollution as they do from lung cancer from smoking, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'm is not that, aware that of that particular right? statistic, but I wouldn't be surprised anymore because the mm. smoking rates have come down yeah. and uh, the quality of the air mm. is, is worsening then I'm not well worsening recently 
um, I'll not be surprised if, if yeah. that is actually true. So I've looked into this statistic. More people are dying of air pollution than they are of lung cancer from smoking. And the World Health Organization, the WHO, state that 4.2 million people are dying per year from ambient air pollution and 3.8 million people for household pollution. So I think the household pollution is referring to things like oil and wood stoves in houses with poor ventilation. This is around 8 million people in total that are thought to be dying each year from air pollution. Whereas the WHO also state that lung cancer associated with smoking, the statistics vary. They range from around 4.9 million to 7 million people dying from lung cancer associated with smoking. So based on the upper limit of the latter statistic of 7 million and the 8 million total from air pollution, it does seem that more people are dying from air pollution than smoking. But you know, so we would do it for an air pollution reason, we'd do it for an obesity or an exercise reason, but it's also absolutely a climate change issue because yeah. um, it's one of the ways in which, you know, um, we one of the reasons that so much fossil fuel goes into the air is, is, is cars absolutely. on the road yeah. and buses on the road. So um, I should probably not say buses because buses buses are great. Buses, <laughs> buses are great for public transport. Cars, yeah, yeah and, and we just need to make the buses greener. So <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what are some of the things that um, GPs can do to help with this, this sort of greener practice movement? Yeah. So what we're wanting... Uh, to do is is to make again just like I was saying that we need to make the behaviours for for people easy to do we want to make the actions for GPs easy to undertake okay Um, because it'll not surprise anyone to hear that GPs are are very very busy push for time and very push for time and very stressed and the depression's under a huge amount of pressure at the moment yeah so but this is an important issue you know this can't wait for when the government suddenly creates loads and loads more GPs so that that stress level has gone down so we're wanting to do things that um, enable people to to make some simple things that they would do anyway for health reasons. So, you know, it's that sort of uh, what they call co-benefits, you yep. know, in, in this area. So you're you're having multiple impacts, yep. really. Um, and, and we're really looking at it from a multi-pronged approach, you know. So there's lots of different ways that people might want to engage with this issue um, and different things um, enthuse different people. So sure. giving people, like, a menu of different things. The um, National Union of Students... And the Royal College of GPs have created an audit for practices okay. um, for called, uh, what's it called now? The Green Impact Audit for Health. Sure. And um, it sort of lists little tasks that people can look at and do um, to see, you know, how they can become greener. Okay, so uh, they can do sort of little steps to have a yes, large impact. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, the impact comes from everyone doing it. Mm. So at the moment, you might be looking at only a couple of hundred practices who are involved in this yeah. initiative. But actually, if we could you know if we, we if we could have thousand practices involved in that issue then even if they're all doing Houston, something small quite steps. small then it's having a massive impact mm. and i guess part of the issue is people not knowing what the steps are so i think most people will know that for instance you know oh energy efficiency light saving bulbs uh, double sided printing those kind of things and they will link those kind of things with climate change what they might not think is well actually um deprescribing so reducing the amount of prescriptions that 
patients are taking, which again fits in with another agenda of making, um, you know, medication more safe. Sure. You know, reducing what we call polypharmacy in older people, where they end up taking lots of medications, and that in itself causes them harm. Mm. Um, and it's finding other strategies to work alongside it, so yeah. complementary, yeah. non-medical based strategies. Well, exactly, and then social prescribing. So social yeah. prescribing has been around for a long time, and. Um, well, relatively long time. Yeah. Um, and so GPs, you know, are engaged with it. We're all very much on board with working um, to to help um, the social determinants of health, as yeah. it were. Um, and, you know, being engaged or becoming more engaged in social prescribing is a greener practice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a measure for greener practice. And letting people know then um, about green prescribing. Sure. So um, this idea that, if you're um, ta- doing an activity for your health, but it involves nature, mm-hmm. then that's going to give you all sorts of additional benefits. Um, and just making people aware of what might be, you know, what those benefits are and, and getting them to consider which organizations are offering those services that they can signpost their patients to. Sure. So you're going to mention something about Sheffield Renewables? Oh, yes. Um, so, you know, so I think we, we talked about social prescribing yeah. as, and, and then small steps that you can take with energy. But um, one of the people, one of the organisations that we um, have partnered with are called Sheffield Renewables. Okay. And they're a community enterprise um, and they put solar panels on community organisations and they will would see a general practice building as a community organization. Okay. So lots of GP practices are having solar panels installed. Or, well or that's the hope. Just, that's the hope. <laughs> it's it's a it's just starting out really. Okay. Um, but what's really exciting about it is it's a really win win project. So um what what Sheffield Renewables will do is put on uh, the solar panels on they organize everything they put the solar panels on the roof so then the practice buys the electricity off them at a fixed rate which Mm -hmm. is usually slightly cheaper than what they would pay anyway and because it's fixed it's not going to go up like with the other major companies Mm -hmm. Um, and the people who are investing in Sheffield Renewables so that's like a form of green investment sure Um, they're getting a little bit of return which they'll probably get more than they would in the you know from the bank um, and then any little profit that Sheffield Renewables have goes to supporting people who have fuel poverty. So wow. it's just this absolutely Such a wonderful, holistic initiative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have one practice in Sheffield that they're currently working with. And what the hope is, is that once they've um, done that, there will be a template. OK, for so other it's a kind of a pilot and yeah. to show an example of how it works yeah. and how it yeah. can benefit the community yeah and what we'd really like as well although this is a little bit trickier is to see if we can encourage um general practices to switch their electricity providers to renewable electricity providers now again you know if we can do that as a bigger group then that's actually quite a massive impact yeah. and if we explain to patients why we're doing it then we're also modeling the link between climate change and health and and you know modeling that behavior um so we're, we're in talks at the moment to see how we might encourage that mm. but at the moment so we have created a website which has resources of information on climate change okay what's the address of the website it's www.greenerpractice.co.uk. Okay. We have a Twitter handle at Greener Practice, and we have a Facebook page as well. Cool. Um, so we're, we're putting resources on. It's quite a new website, so different things are going on all the time. Um, and we're hoping to build as well a resource directory of the good practice that other people are doing. So, you know, recently we um, heard from uh, one of the practices in Sheffield that has won an award um, for their um, allotment. 
oh, in wow. which um, you know patients actually come and, and and work in that allotment as well. So there's all sorts of amazing practice awesome. going on there, and and having those examples helps other people sort of engage. Another little example is. Um, a lot of people don't know that um, there is an inhaler recycling scheme. So if you use inhalers for asthma or COPD, you can actually, mm. some some pharmacies will take them and then they that's get recycled. That's interesting. I guess that's one of those things that you don't think about. Like yeah. You, just, you have your inhaler and then maybe chuck it or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not one of those things that you think about recycling. Yeah, but also if you, you know, um, it may be that the pharmacies are doing it, but they're not advertising it. Okay. So we just need to sort of raise the awareness of the issue and make it possible for each patient in each practice to know where they have to go to recycle their inhalers. So, okay. So yeah. they're kind of like little battery yeah. recycling banks. Yeah, around, a bit like that. Yeah. A bit like the Yeah, a okay. bit like that. So. Awesome. Okay, yeah, so I was really lucky enough to attend one of your greening practice meetings the other day. It's really inspiring stuff. Yeah. Um, and someone came in, what, what was the na- her name? Deirdre Duff. Deirdre Duff. She yeah. came in to talk about this thing called divestment, which I've not heard of before. Yeah. Um, and that was really good. So maybe you could explain to the listeners what divestment is for those that don't know. Yeah, so divestment is a fantastic movement, which is basically saying um, what we need to do is take our money out of fossil fuels okay um so it's essentially the opposite of investment it's the opposite of investment which i suppose is why it's called die yeah. you know? <laughs> those d words tend to mean taking away don't they so um yeah and and it really is that simple we basically cannot burn most of the fossil fuel reserves that we have i think it's 80 okay. percent of fossil fuels that are already known that we c- could be extracting need to stay in the ground okay. if we're to limit warming to below two degrees and actually we really want to limit warming to below 1.5 degrees and we're already at one degree so we're not right. talking not that much, much difference there's not much time mm. um and obviously the stuff that we've already put in the atmosphere is continuing to warm and will continue to warm the planet for some time to come yeah um so, you know, basically money talks, mm-hmm. you know, if we if we can show that fossil fuels is no longer supported. Yeah. Um, and and there's no you know, their their business model collapses because people are not investing in them, then that's a that's a different way. So there's the political will way, which is trying to say trying to get governments to do the right thing. But then there's also the way of sort of saying, well, we're just not funding this. And this is where people's pension schemes are really, really, really? Um, influential, because if pension schemes or um, were to take their money out of uh, fossil fuels, that's then a, lot of that's money a huge amount out. of money. And it's it's really it's a growing movement. So once you find out about it, you know, your New York City has taken all of its funds out of uh, fossil fuels some countries have really? whole countries ireland wow. has uh is it ireland or the ireland parliament has divested from fossil fuels so you know it doesn't necessarily have to be done on a national sure. level it, it sounds kind of idealistic but if there are kind of big examples already out there then yeah, yeah. obviously it's not yeah even better is positive investment in um say Renewables. renewable energy mm. or um reforestation projects sure. you know so um there's there's also a positive investment strategy sometimes within what we call ethical investment sure um i guess that's one of the issues you've got to look at where's the money going once it's been taken out of fossil fuels yeah absolutely so where's it being plugged into yeah but the divestment is is very very simple it's just saying the cause of climate change is the burning of fossil fuels and we need to take the money out of there um so um it, it's it's really gathering momentum but it can be done at an individual level so each individual person can think 
I just need to think about taking, making sure that my money isn't invested in sure. fossil fuels. Yeah. So divestment seems like a really cool way of having to take small steps to have a significant impact. And it obviously relates to ethical investment. Uh, and this is also known as socially responsible investment. Uh, the Financial Times defines a responsible investment as an investment strategy which seeks to generate both financial and sustainable value. It consists of a set of investment approaches that integrate environmental, social and governance and ethical issues into financial analysis and decision making. Responsible investment goes by many names. It is variously referred to as socially responsible investing, ethical investing, sustainable investing, triple bottom line investing, and green investing. But underlying these differing names is a common theme focused on long-term value and creation. Value in this context refers not only to economic value, but to the broader values of fairness, justice, and environmental sustainability. And you can find more information about climate change and divestment, like Artie said, at 350.org. And there's also another site I just found, it's called gofossilfree.org forward slash divestment. This gives a really good overview of fossil fuel divestment, and there's even a, a video as well to just give you a quick overview. So divestment is the opposite of investment. It simply means getting rid of stocks, bonds, and investment funds that are unethical or morally ambiguous. And like Artie has said, divestment is also to end fossil fuel sponsorship. So fossil fuel companies cultivate sponsorship relationships to help create social license to operate. This contributes to the veneer of legitimacy that enables them to keep expanding operations at a time of climate crisis and to stifle the demands for justice of those communities who live on the front line of their destructive, polluting operations. And this particular campaign is asking institutions to immediately freeze any new investment in fossil fuel companies, divest from direct ownership and any co-mingled funds that include fossil fuel public equities and corporate bonds within five years, and end their fossil fuel sponsorship. It ends by saying, fossil fuel divestment takes the fossil fuel industry to task for its culpability in the climate crisis. By naming this industry singularly destructive influence, and by highlighting the moral dimensions of climate change, we hope that the fossil fuel divestment movement can help break the hold the fossil fuel industry has on our economy and our governments. So you can head over to gofossilfree.org and find out more about divestment there. And writing to your MP, it's, it's one of those simple things that, you know, you can ask... Getting your voice out there. And yeah, so I think in Sheffield, five, of our, six of, five out of the six of our MPs support um, the, Brit- the British Parliament divesting. Okay. Um, and what would be nice would be for all of it, all of our um, our city as a whole, all the MPs in our city to support it, um, and and potentially build a movement to get the Parliament to divest, because that would be a really yeah. powerful message, and it often often acts as a springboard then mm-hmm. for um, political will around divestment. So where can people find more out about divestment? So a really good place to start, I think, is three fifty dot org. Okay. Which is uh, an international website which. Gives Gives you information about what divestment is, right. um, but um, on an individual level, if people wanted to look at um, divesting, then they could ask um, their pension funds if there was a if they're investing in fossil fuels. If they're investing in fossil fuels, and if there's a fund that they could shift to, because a lot of um, 
as as the growth you know as the demand grows for people to not want to invest in fossil fuels all of these funds are now being created which don't invest in fossil fuels so it's actually quite easy to do yeah um plus the other good news is um you know there's a lot of uh, financial advisors now who are recommending that people divest not necessarily because of long-term sustainability of um with companies i guess yeah and and actually it's year on year um you know the way that the the funds are performing is better so you're actually sure. gonna, your money is makes sense financially is, it makes a lot of sense financially so even in the here and now mm. um some people the fi- I'm, I'm not sure that the financial managers who are recommending that people move are solely motivated by climate change but they are motivated by giving their customers the <laughs> best you know the best investment advice sure and it's t- it's becoming the best investment advice as well sure yeah. So if your if your values are money based or climate change based, then it makes sense for either. Yeah. Okay. Do it for whatever reason. It's such a such a cool initiative and such an like you say another really easy way of making a massive difference to yeah. to the world to planetary health to climate yeah. anti climate yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So, what are your thoughts on the relationship between nature and health? Do you feel like there is a benefit of spending time in nature? Absolutely. I mean, I think we there's so many things that we all sort of intuitively know, yeah. don't we? So we all intuitively feel mm. um, just better, sure. <laughs> and both physically and mentally. You know, when and and perhaps you know we could put the spiritual dimension in there as well yeah. um, when we're in nature. Um, so I think we all know that, but it's really wonderful um, to see some evidence emerging for that to try and help convince the decision makers the policy sure. makers that actually it's important we do it? need to to move to making again these kind of um you know th- those kind of activities really easy for people to access yeah and sometimes it's quite a strange feeling like you say it's because yeah. it's kind of intuitive a lot of the things are intuitive mm-hmm. and then so you think why do we why do why we need do to we study need to why do we need to we yeah. know this but like you say it's important for to gather the evidence in order to change policy and yeah these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's a good or bad thing. I'm still sort of debating this as to whether um, policy um, isn't uh, driven by common sense. Right. Um, we want to be uh, living in a society mm. that is, you know, looks at the facts and looks at the evidence. But equally, you ca- it's not always easy to generate evidence on lots of different things. So you'd hope sure. that it, it wasn't that we work just on the basis of an absence of ev- evidence but we we work on our you know common enlightened common sense as it were as well sure. as you know so any kind of emerging evidence we need to make sure that the public is aware of the evidence yeah um and that's another thing you know thank you very much jake for helping to put together these slides on the no, evidence no really um really simple and easy to understand but accurate slides on the way that um, green prescribing or, or, or rather spending time in nature has an impact on people's physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. And by displaying those things in, you know, hoping to get GPs to, to display them um, on their sort of screens as people are waiting to go and see their doctors, we're educating people about the Whilst they're just sitting this. around in the Whilst waiting room. Whilst they're sitting yeah. around, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask everyone this question. Mm. So if you had ultimate power or a massive budget, for, mm. say, for public health, what are some of the things that you would change or some of the things that you would do? So if money wasn't an object. Well, the interesting thing is, is that the things that you would do, mm-hmm. I think, um, to make 
the world a healthier place yeah. and a happier place would actually save you money as well. Yeah. Just like a lot of these things that we're talking about in terms of action and climate change, sure. a lot of them save us money as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would make uh, one one of the things that we've been talking about is I would make it so that um, it was the norm for people to walk and cycle, and we had. Uh, it was really difficult to drive, mm-hmm. um, but equally made really, really simple to use other things. So um, cycle paths <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then I would be looking at um, putting a lot of um, support in to support the caring of people. Okay. So um, the things that have been cut massively in the last 20 years are social Uh, care services and that has a huge impact on health Mm -hmm. um, down the road so putting our investments into people who do any kind of caring for people um, I think would be huge and that could be you know elderly people who require care it could be isolated people yeah isolated people Um, isolation and loneliness is being is is massive risk factor it's a massive risk factor for health and it's becoming yeah becoming more and more people are becoming more and more aware that that is a public health issue Um, so doing things like that making sure that we have um, we are creating an environment where it is easy for people to connect with people because that is a really important part of our health and well-being is it's really important for us to to meet and connect with each other and sure. and and to feel like we have agency in our in our sort of local communities um but you know caring for you i mean going back to the caring thing caring for younger people you know when it was i i felt really particularly sad when a lot of the shore starts um were closed mm-hmm. um and you know people from so more socioeconomically deprived areas weren't getting those supports um, for you know for, for their children and their families early on. Um, basically, upstream work. Yeah. Again, <laughs> so, though, it's not in. Yeah. Uh, again, another pattern is you don't yeah. necessarily need all the money in the world to make these changes. It could happen right now, really. It's it just, could absolutely. There's, there's so many. What you, what you need to do is is, and you need to be courageous. So mm-hmm. it, this might might be a bit controversial, but actually. If you're really interested in improving health and well-being, you don't stick it at the end of Mm. the chain, which is what we do at the moment. So the huge amounts of money being spent to see if maybe this treatment or this investigation or this might... And it might only give you, it might give you like a tiny percentage benefit, but there there are some sort of therapies where you... you Or some drugs. Some drugs that may or may not make a, a small difference. What we do know is giving people the right, start giving caring, giving, you know, all of these mm-hmm. things, making the environment a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Preventatives. It, yeah, preventatives are going to have a massive, massive impact. But those things at the end of the chain, they cost a fortune. Yeah. Um, and that's where we, I think that's where we conceptualize health. Yeah. So rather than, we, uh, part of the problem is, is we conceptualize health as something that happens when things go wrong. Yeah. So we see it as a disease treatment thing. I feel that's like the same way we, we treat yeah. the environment as well. Absolutely. It's sort of patchwork, isn't it? Because yeah. you need to get to the root cause and you yeah. need a um, yeah. holistic approach. Yeah. Whereas if we it. conceptualized health as, as as a resource for living, yeah, you know that's not my phrase. That's somebody else's amazing <laughs> phrase. It's a great. So phrase. health health as a resource for living, yeah. Then we would really be investing in all the things that help us 
you know prevent us getting ill and sure. and, and help us live and that's not to say that we don't need that stuff later on mm-hmm. but if we do that stuff you know in the public health arena and earlier and in the social care arena and the education field and we do all of those things earlier then we're going to prevent a lot of those effects later on and it's going to cost a lot less yeah Okay, so is there anything else you want to talk about or promote on the podcast um, to get get the word out there? Do you know, one of the things that I, I do want to talk about is Pedal Ready. Okay. And this is only because of personal experience. So I recently um, uh, went on some... So Pedal Ready... No, I should talk about what Pedal Ready is first. So Pedal Ready is a, an organisation that is funded in Sheffield. So it's totally free. Okay, only um, in Sheffield, is that... No, no, no. There are other cities. Well, I think they work. They definitely work regionally as well. So I know they're in Rotherham. They may well be um, in other places. And I'm sure there are similar similar schemes schemes. all around the country um, where they will teach anybody who wants to um, how to be on a bike. So you can learn to ride if you've never ridden a bike or you could be like me who could ride a bike but was wobbly even in a park okay so you can do com- road confidence sessions in the park um or if you want if you're pretty good at cycling but you're not sure about cycling on the road then they do road cycling Just to boost your confidence yeah to boost your confidence awesome. and um i was somebody who thought no way am I ever riding in traffic yeah. you know I'm I was a nervous cyclist at best and I just didn't see it it is know. about confidence though, isn't it, it? it really is about confidence just... I am totally amazed <laughs> that I am now cycling on the road really? I am the least likely person <laughs> to ever cycle on the road and it has taken an e-bike for me to do it <laughs> because Sheffield's really hilly and I'm really unfit but it's been amazing it's been really? trans- it, I actually feel like it's something that could potentially transform my life really? and my health and so that's a, that's also an example you know of the kind of initiatives that we should be putting yeah. in because a, um, a it improves your health and b yeah. it reduces the use of cars and yeah. reduces pollution absolutely. it's yeah. such again such a small thing that can make a massive difference absolutely yeah but it's often it's the long-term impacts you know yeah. and and those aren't measured necessarily yeah. so but i you know i re- i do want and that's an, another example if you like it's sort of an example of green prescribing because it is eventually putting people in nature and it's you know it's increasing exercise and all of those kind of things so um yeah i wanted to to shout a shout out to pedal ready really and and say sheffield city council please (laughs) keep funding them so (laughs) where where would people find more information about pedal ready then is there a website there is a website i guess you could just google pedal ready you could google pedal ready and i'm should i find out yeah yeah go for it i'll 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 have a look i'll google pedal ready and i'll I'll tell you now um (laughs) It's www.pedalready.co.uk. Okay, simple. Yeah, and they they run they run them all across the city, um. So you know, parks all across the city. Um, That's great. It's a great initiative. So there's no judgment. You just turn up if you if you're not confident on a bike. Yeah, they're amazing. The the yeah. the cycling trainers are amazing. They will awesome. work with anybody at any level, and they just are very supportive. But you learn an awful lot of skills. So yeah, it's 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 really brilliant. So those those are the kind of things that you know we need, need to be support. doing more more Definitely. of and need support. Sounds great. Yeah. Here's a little bit more about what an e-bike actually is and the basic concept of an electric bike. Got this information from explainthatstuff.com. If you have dynamo-powered bicycle lights, you already own an electric-powered bicycle. Consider as you pump your legs up and down on the pedals, you make the wheels rotate. A small dynamo or generator mounted on the wheel produces a tiny current of electricity that, that keeps your back safety lamp lit in the dark. Now suppose you could run this process backwards. What if you removed the lamp and replaced it with a large battery? 
that battery would kick out a steady electric current, driving the dynamo in reverse, so that it spun around like an electric motor. As the dynamo or motor turned, it would rotate the tyre, make the bike go along without any help from your pedalling. Hey presto, an electric bike. It may sound a bit far-fetched, but this is more or less exactly how electric bikes work. So there are four key parts on an electric bike. These are the batteries, the motor, the sturdy frame and the spokes, and the brakes. And there are two types of electric bike motors, they're the full power and the power assisted. So in terms of the full power, these bikes are designed for minimal pedalling over relatively short distances. They have large batteries and powerful hub motors, and they tend to be big, sturdy and heavy. Bikes like this are for people who love cycling but hate pedalling. Since you're using power all the time, the range is limited, typically 60 to 30 kilometers, or 10 to 20 miles. Then there is the power assist electric bike motor, so also known as pedal assisted bikes. These are the bicycle equivalents of hybrid cars. They are designed to be pedalled quite a lot of the time and electrically powered even when you're tired or when you feel like a bit of electric help when you're going uphill for example. Unlike full powered bikes they don't have hub motors. Instead there's a separate electric motor mounted near the rear wheel and driving it either through the gear sprocket or simply by pressing against the rear tyre. Where a hub motor is difficult or impossible to pedal without any power, for example because you're effectively turning it into a generator, power assisted motors turn easily with little or no resistance when you pedal. That gives power assisted bikes much greater range than hub motor ones, so as much as 80 to 145 kilometers or 50 to 90 miles. So how environmentally friendly are our electric bikes? Electric bikes are nowhere near as environmentally friendly as ordinary push bikes, but nothing is ever perfect. And as people often say, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Electric bikes are certainly a step in the right direction. If everyone used them to get about instead of cars, climate change might be less of a problem and the world would be a far cleaner and healthier place. So electric bikes are not perfect, but if you're using your car less often, then it's a really good step in the right direction. Okay, so how will people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about anything? Um, you say you've got a Twitter account? Yeah, we've got a Twitter account, so, so, so to tweet us and link into us. We really want GPs to link their websites to the Greener Practice homepage okay. because we think... You want to create a directory of yeah. supporting GPs? Um, yeah, because I mean, well, partly so that their their patients can see that um, that their practice also uh, um, believes that climate change is a health issue, and and then the GPs can can write the kind of things, and it doesn't have to be a lot. It could just be one action, you know. Yeah. It might just be that the GPs have signed up to open prescribing to see how they can prescribe better or something like that. Um, so you know, they the the GPs can write, but also the patients can have then have the access to the same resources that the GPs have. So sure. um, so that's one thing that we're you know really hoping that people can do so you know you can we do have an email um so you can contact us through the email and that all that information is on the website okay what's yeah. the email address <laughs> greenerpractice at gmail.com i think yeah <laughs> and the website is greenerpractice.co.uk yeah awesome arty vansel thanks a lot for coming on the show thank you so great. much for having me no worries cheers bye so it's time for pick of the week Harry, welcome back to Pick of the Week. Hi, Jake. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Jet lagged. Flying in from Jet Belfast. Lagged. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's exhausting. It's, yeah. And then train lag as well, I guess. Oh, my word. Pennines. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, cool. So, what have we got to talk about for this week's Pick of the Week? Um, so, this week I've been reading Fred Pierce's book on the new nature, and it came yeah. out... I think it was maybe published two or three years ago. Yeah, I think Sorry. 2015. Okay, so it feels recent, mm-hmm. and it 
it's been talked about quite a bit recently in it seems to be popping up in different conversations yeah, okay. and different magazines and blogs and I've I've seen it referred to so often as kind of like, oh this is a um, a really provocative book that changes the way you think about like nature and yeah. succession and what's what's ecological what's sensitive what's native what isn't and it was an int- yeah it was it's an interesting one because I kind of picked it up thinking like right I'm ready to have my mind blown yeah, yeah. bring it on I can't wait yeah. um, and then reading it it was kind of like all about yeah this is the new nature we've just got to kind of adapt it's going to happen anyway get on with it yeah and then at the same time as you kind of go through it it provoked quite a lot of interesting questions so I'm yeah. interested to see what you think yeah of so I'm sort of two thirds of the way through it and I'm really enjoying it so far I disagree with quite a few things but at the same time it's quite nice to have a, that kind of provocative sort of thinking outside the box narrative yeah. Yeah, the provocative bits, it's good, isn't it? Like, mm. um, I was talking to one of my supervisors maybe about a year ago, uh, Ross Cameron, uh-huh. and um, we were talking about biosecurity and plant health, yeah. things which I get really interested in. And he was, and it, I don't know, maybe he's a bit like Fred Pierce, maybe he's like an agent provocateur, because he, he kind of said something like, um, oh, well, you know, uh, if I had my way, I'd just uh, import all these pests in advance bring on Xylella <laughs> okay. bring it on we need to just adapt bring Predict it all in till. yeah absolutely let's just get up to speed it's going to happen one day let's just you know let's start importing Mosaria mm. and I was like you. interesting really. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well quite and I, I thought hang on <laughs> hang on are you I'm a bit more complex than that well are, are, you, are you just kind of yeah. trying to play with me here yeah, yeah. Um, and trying to watch me kind of tie myself in knots or, or is this like a genuine ecological philosophy and yeah. I I'm still kind of trying to work out Ross's (laughs) perspective (laughs) on life and see if he is just this agent of chaos and destruction. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's provocative for the sake of being provocative. I guess with these books, it sells. And then there's also trying to stimulate new ways of thinking that might benefit society. Yeah, well, I think stimulating the way people think is... Mm. Yeah, there's always scope for that, isn't there? That's really important. That's great. But I think where it starts to get a challenging question is when you look at, I don't know, I don't know about what it's like when you read the book, but or when you're reading the book. But I keep flicking back through to the sources or the references that he yeah. cites, and you look it up, and you're like, "All right, this is written in 1986." And you flip through, carry on reading, and the "All right, let's check out that source." Oh, that one was from 1996. Yeah, and you're like, "Hang on, a lot of these sources." Yeah, you, you know, like the conversations moved on uh-huh. quite a lot, and I guess the question of like what's native what isn't does it matter hmm. it kind of makes you question whether he's cherry picked some of the yeah and, the, and, the and this conversation's been going on I guess yeah. now for a while one of the articles I read recently was in New Humanist and it said yeah. you know um, ecologists have this argument about what's native what isn't mm-hmm. you know haha imagine if there's a parallel with human societies can we start talking about you know xenophobia yeah. oh, let me blow your mind and you can kind of go yes okay let's talk about like xenophobia and the movement of people and refugees mm. and okay great let's take an ecological perspective on that but you know what it's not the most you know esoteric parallel to draw you know that's quite an obvious mm. leap of the mind to make and so and it's kind it's kind of insulting to assume everyone's just got that xenophobia that's why everyone hates the invasive species yeah exactly kind of a bit too simplistic maybe yeah and, and um, I think one of the kind of the big elements within this is that one of the arguments that Fred Pierce presents is kind of like nature doesn't care mm-hmm. if it's native or not mm-hmm. yep. and to my mind that's a bit of a red herring because mm. you know nature doesn't care of course it doesn't care what nature does is it 
functions mm -hmm. and it functions at different rates and in different ways and that to me is a more interesting bit of nuance or, or way to yeah. look at it because if you take like the example of starlings in the United States or North America mm -hmm. of course that has an impact on nature and whether or not nature cares or not is yeah irrelevant yeah, yeah. you know it's, it's a red herring it does yeah. have a alter crop dynamics or ecosystem dynamics and that is a really interesting question yeah i guess throughout the book he kind of suggests like a lack of evidence for the effectiveness of current and past strategies mm. but then some of his evidence is kind of sketchy as well so i feel like mm. if you're going to try and promote your view and sort of yeah. challenge the the norm for the lack of evidence then you've kind of got to have some vigorous you've got to have something good on your examples yeah you've got to have something good in your back pocket yeah but or in, in, in your front pocket i don't know but the, <laughs> but the thing is is that as well, as well related to that is is the basic concept of of kind of like competitive exclusion in yep. species dynamics is really interesting and I, mm. I I can't reconcile a lot of the data with like how it seems mm -hmm. intuitively to my mind I I really struggle to kind of reconcile it because things like Himalayan balsam say we talk about it in the UK as a big problem and it suppresses our native flora say mm -hmm. or, argue, or people argue that it suppresses our native flora and they say uh, we need to have systematic treatments to clear the waterways of Himalayan bulls. Other people come along, like Ross Cameron or Fred Pierce, and say, "Wait, what are you worried about? You know, it's just providing a nectar source that's later <laughs> in the year. Um, it's pretty, so you notice it more. And yeah. actually, if you look underneath it, um, it's actually got loads of wild garlic or bluebells often underneath it, and it doesn't actually suppress the earlier flowering mm. species." Do you think a lot of this UK? comes down to kind of the ethical framework? So different people have different views on the importance of nature and if, whether it's important to them or whether it has intrinsic value. For certain. For certain. And I don't think we talk about that often enough. I find it's uncomfortable mm. sometimes. And I don't think Fred Pierce talks about it enough because yeah. I, I guess he spends quite a bit of time talking about like naive introductions yeah. of plants or animals into different countries, say, mm. like, and associates it with like colonial mentality. Yeah. So, okay, that's a, a really interesting kind of bit of context to explain how some things have moved across continents. Mm -hmm. But I think we can do more than just associate this with colonial mindsets or invaders or imperial philosophies. Yeah. You know, I think we can really start to ask those uncomfortable questions about where we think trade-offs are mm. or what trade-offs we're prepared to make in our understanding of ecosystem management. So do you think he's trying to get it sort of basically just leave nature alone? When I took a step back from that book, the main message I took from it was his message of nature doesn't care. Yeah. You know, um, over over a period of time, yeah. ecosystem health and resilience will mm. establish itself. Yeah. And we might move past kind of like tipping points or into new mm. paradigms. I kind of agree with some of the things he says on that note, but I feel that that's kind of in an ideal world where the, the current rate of extinction or the current rate of anthropogenic pressures don't exist. He does mention something about humans essentially prep the ecosystems to make it more easily invadable, essentially, mm. which is a good point. Yeah, absolutely. And things like Rhododendron Ponticum wouldn't be so mm -hmm. well established in the Western Highlands if the Atlantic rainforest was still established. Sure. Sure, fair enough. But then but I feel like that is yeah. the reality, therefore you can't necessarily just let, let it happen because it, exactly. and, and, and too much pressure. And I think I, 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 have a lot of, I would have a lot more sympathy with his viewpoint if he was upfront about saying 
this viewpoint stands if you're willing to take the perspective of like a 200 year cycle yeah you know and we're willing yeah. to say over the course of the next 200 years a forest will re-establish or a climax woodland will re-establish on the ascension islands sure okay great i can get behind that that's just the course of ecosystem and community dynamics yep. great what we don't have is 200 years we've got 12 years before we reach this threshold sure. know, as the IPCC yeah. said the other day when they published their report and so the, the, the amount of species that are already going extinct now is compared to the background it's sort just of rate of it's furnace. absolutely <laughs> massive yeah well, it's this furnace of extinction yeah. at the moment it's terrifying it's kind of nice that Fred Pierce highlights the dynamicity of ecosystems quite like that so in terms of they're not necessarily closed unit that sort yeah. of thing and it's kind of nice to highlight the fact that it's changing all the time because that's a kind of along the lines of that chaos theory sort of thing yeah. even in the case of like islands and island sure, biogeography yeah. where you have so like it is always a changing closed system but, and yeah. it says well actually no it's not closed because no, sure um because of imperialism yeah. <laughs> basically <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually yeah, which ties yeah. on to another thought which is i guess there was a, been at the back of my mind for ages which is as ecologists we're always talking about like dynamic systems mm. and um, the interrelatedness of different phenomena mm-hmm. and just um, i guess phenomena like selection mm-hmm. darwinistic evolution say and we kind of look at conservationists and go you know what we can't keep this nature reserve in aspic we've got to let it change things will change over time and we take this quite laissez-faire approach to nature conservation mm. and i guess i wondered as i read this like why aren't more of us like hardcore libertarians yeah. in the political sphere yeah. you know like we are effectively in an ecological mindset we kind of look at it and go get on with it everyone you know if you're a bramble good luck to you sooner or later you'll be out competed by an oak tree sure off you go let it all play out and then as soon as we step into kind of like policies or the policy world we're I guess having a discussion like we are now like well you can't let that happen <laughs> <laughs> you know and and we yeah, start kind of tr- we start trying to manipulate like the world around us or the the policy frameworks around yeah. us and becoming the po- kind of authoritarian yeah and we and we suddenly switch from kind of like being libertarians to kind of like quite authoritarian kind of like yeah. um umpires yeah. or or referees and i just wonder like <laughs> as ecologists perhaps we need to kind of like reconcile our kind of philosophical Possibly. approach to life mm. i don't know like can can we really justify, for example, arguing on the one hand for um, strong uh, designations like SACs, SPAs, mm. triple SIs, and at the same time argue, well, within them, we're just going to let it all go. <laughs> you know, can we on the yeah. one hand argue for? I guess you kind of got to work with the dominant political system, though, haven't you? Yeah, you got to, yeah, you got to pick your battles, I suppose. Yeah. But then at the same time, you could say like. Um, at a political or economic level can we argue for the continued funding of the Environment Agency or Natural England Mm. shouldn't we all just be letting it play out and uh, and just you know nature will take its course like if I'm I'm being a bit yeah um, bit Fred Pearcean I'm being a bit yeah Fred Pearcean or Ross Cameron (laughs) but um but I think that's you know it's it's a conversation that perhaps we need to kind of have it's an interesting one yeah um yeah. Um, I, quite, I quite also like the, that it's bringing to the public attention that not all invasive species are detrimental to the environment. Yeah, and, and it's kind of you shouldn't examples. throw everything into one. Yeah, there's loads of examples, aren't there, of how alien species yeah. provide habitat, necessary habitat, yeah. for 
other native species. Exactly. There's tons of species that don't have a detriment effect or even have a beneficial effect, and it's important to realise that, I think. And I guess, like, in this discussion, we very often generalise, naturalise, or we rather collapse naturalised and invasive species mm. into the category of the other. Mm. And, yeah, that's not a very helpful category to create, is it? No. Um, but nonetheless... I think if we take a functional ecology approach to mm. this and say there is a difference between species which are naturalised and can perform, can create kind of self-sustaining populations and become functionally part of an ecosystem, that's totally different from something that's invasive and mm. where perhaps our attentions need to be focused and then we can start it's to have this conversation about like, is an invasive <coughs> plant a problem mm. or not? Like, I guess it's only invasive in the certain conditions as well, so it might only be invasive in certain geographical locations. Or I don't think the question of what the distinction is between naturalised and invasive mm. is really well defined in no. Fred Pierce's book. Like it's not resolved because by invasive do we just mean basically a damn nuisance? Yeah, is that is that what I guess that is what we mean, yeah. isn't it? Really, I guess it does mention alien invaders as well. Uh, uh, that term's really <laughs> annoying. Alien invaders is again, it's just such a red herring, like. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone such, is a, such a kind of yeah, like, kind of demonising a species yeah. for being successful, which is well, James frustrating. Hitch, James Hitchmo has got a really good example of this. I remember going to one of his lectures yeah. early on, and he was talking about evolution and distribution of species, and he was saying, well, you know, look, human beings are effectively a tropical species, mm. and the proof of that is go and take your clothes off and stand outside the arts tower. And he was giving this lecture in January, and his point was, you know, if you go out there now you know you're not well adjusted there's not a strong degree of fit between homo sapiens and northern england you know we are in many ways the ultimate invasive species and yeah absolutely and, and i guess again this I is something which is that, yeah I'd, I I, I'd, so. I'd have a lot of sympathy with that like mm. we are an invasive species on, on a planetary scale and we display strong imperialistic behaviors mm-hmm. colonial behaviors and i guess that is again something which is perhaps missing from this book and the wider Absolutely. discussion because i feel like it touches on things like this but obviously there's only so much you can fit in a book uh, oh, i quite like uh, have you heard of daniel simbaloff i oh. think he's a he's possibly an invasive invasive species ecologist right but um he kind of had a paper in 2013 and he says two major challenges must be overcome related to how scientists and the public perceive introduced populations their consequences and their management First is the need to shift attention further from dominant focus on the properties of invading organisms to how anthropogenic changes in ecosystems facilitate many invasions, which Fred Pierce does highlight. Which I'm sorry, kind of a can, you, can you break that down for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so one of the, the, the two major challenges is the, kind of n- the, sh- the need to understand how, I guess, humans, as we were talking about earlier, kind of prep the ecosystem kind okay. of ready for these invasive these so-called invasive species to proliferate i guess so it says first there's the need to shift the attention further from dominant focus on the properties of invading organisms okay. to how anthropogenic changes in ecosystems facilitate many invasions oh, so that's kind of an like interesting a, point so he's taking like a functional ecology perspective and saying yeah. like, like does bracken effectively operate in the same way as rhododendron ponting. Yeah, possibly that, but also possibly looking at not necessarily the invasive species itself, but how we have influenced the ecosystem for sure. them, them to sure. so by colonise, essentially. By felling like a climax so we, woodland, yeah. we've created this opportunity mm. for a, a light-hungry plant species, whether it be rhododendron or bracken, then, yep. to proliferate and dominate mm-hmm. and exclude other species. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's kind of taking a step um, step back in time, I guess, or p- sort of predicting what, by our changing the ecosystem, how that will facilitate oh. um, invasions. Okay, so that gets... Oh, that's interesting then. Yeah. So, he so we can kind of look, look at how we're operating in the world mm-hmm. and then sort of predict how this will facilitate invasions. Part of that might be like a niche modelling approach where we look at an yeah. environment and say, look, which niches exist at the moment and which are likely to exist Mm -hmm. if we carry on managing the landscape in this way yeah exactly and then we can say right okay well this landscape is likely to be excellent habitat for opportunistic ruderal species Mm, precisely and there are no ruderals around here therefore the first one in wins sure whether (laughs) you're Exactly. Or I think more modelling yeah. sort of needs to be done. I reckon, mm. Yeah, and then the second is the need to convey the information to the public about the range, the scope, and the consequences of less obvious effects of invasions, such as those affecting ecosystem processes. So Crikey, that's, that's a lot of conveying, <laughs> isn't it? That's a lot of conveying. <laughs> we've got to do something. Well, sure. I hope, that, hope everyone's listening to this podcast. <laughs> but that's uh, an important point, isn't it? I think possibly a lot of the theory to do with invasive species is how aesthetically displeasing they are, maybe. But yeah. it's kind An alarmist. Of the, the, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, arguably, the more important thing is how they affect uh, ecosystem processes. I think they're two important points. So it's important to look at how they affect ecosystem processes and also how our actions facilitate the invasions themselves. No, I can see that bringing like a, a, a sense of measure to the to the debate. Sure. I kind of feel like I'm one of those judges asking in a, in a court case, who, who are the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for the recap. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. um, okay. So yeah, shall we wrap this up then? Thought-provoking pick of the week. I uh, hope you've all enjoyed it. Thanks again for coming on the show, Harry. Cheers, Jay. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's it for a dose of nature this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. And next time I'll be interviewing Professor Graham Rook from University College London. Now he's a world-renowned emeritus professor of medical microbiology, and we're going to be talking to him about lots of things such as uh, environmental microbiome as a potential mechanism to explain some of the health benefits we derive from nature we'll be talking about immunology depression and stress and urban living and lots of different things so please check back in a couple of weeks and find me on twitter at underscore jake underscore robinson and thanks again for listening